Hello there and welcome to the return of Tony Cascarino to an Irishman abroad. You may remember if you're a long-time listener that back in 2013, Tony came on for episode six of this podcast when I was fresh as a daisy, my first ever footballer on the show, a hero of mine as a child. And we talked about everything, his whole life story right from the very beginning, from going from being a builder to playing for Gillingham, Millwall, Aston Villa, Celtic, Chelsea, Marseille and of course Ireland. But I forgot to hit record for the first five minutes of that chat. And what I didn't realise, along with not being able to hit record, was that with Tony Cascarino what you get is the unvarnished truth right from the start. And he just went for it in that first five minutes and told us about this complicated situation with his nationality that he found himself in where realities of his past and his family heritage were revealed to him late in life how other players encouraged him not to come out and not say anything but he couldn't do it and as a result felt like a fraud for a very long time unfortunately i hadn't hit record so we lost it i'm happy to say today we get it back i sit down with Tony here and in the second half of this interview we really dig into what exactly happened there. Not before we get 30 minutes of reflection on Jack Charlton, the state of football today and lots, lots more. It's all here in this Tony Cascarino interview, but to hear the second half of it, you have to come to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. That's how we keep the show afloat. That's how we stay weekly and how we've managed to produce this show over the last three difficult years. It doesn't cost much, about the price of two fancy coffees, depending on where you're buying them. But I really do appreciate it if you come on over there. You're the lifeblood of the show. But if this is what you want, the first half of this interview, you're in the right place. It's the Tony Cascarino part two interview on an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Tony Gasparino, it's fantastic to have you back on The Irishman Abroad. It's hard to believe that it is episode six was our first episode with <laughs> you were the first person who wasn't an emigrant on the show. And uh, people still bring up the episode to this day to me. In fact, two weeks ago, Josh Whittacombe brought it up. And yeah. uh, I told him that uh, I actually screwed up the recording. It was my, one of my first times <laughs> using the piece of kit I was using. And I lost the first five minutes uh, of what we talked about. But we'll get to that later on. How how would you say the last couple of years of what we've lived through has changed what you do and football? Um, well, first and foremost, I, 
many people have had these issues to deal with where, you know, losses, um, not only because of our age, but because of the pandemic. And um, my wife lost uh, her mum and dad within the last two years. I lost a very close friend. My mum was taken seriously, always in an induced coma. She came out of and she's making a recovery, but she's certainly not the same in any shape or form. Um, my ex-wife, who died and had three children with in Tahiti, um, so sorry. which as yeah, that was another issue, which was really bizarre. And I mean, you know, it just couldn't comprehend that how life can change so dramatically. Mm. And um, you know, uh, but we've we've had our own issues to deal with here. But the, the pandemic, in some bizarre way, has changed many people's outlook towards what they feel is really important. And I sort of fell in love with football, Joe. I say that as I, I sort of fell out with love with football, but football becomes so prominent in this period that it was a it was real. I mean, I've watched so much of it and I watched yes. old big, big match revisited. I watched old games, uh, you know, and then I'm watching football with no fans. If you'd have said to me, you know, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, well, watch football with no fans. I would have said, I couldn't think of anything worse. Mm. Well, there I was watching football with no fans. <laughs> I mean, that used to be the punishment, wasn't it? That was the punishment well, exactly. for a club that misbehaved was take away the fans. But that was oh, what yeah. we were faced with. And in, so you think that it, in some ways it, it reminded people of, well, actually, the purity, the thing itself is beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the game's never been so beautiful, Joe, I, I don't think, in what's been served up. I think the laws of football have changed, which has meant that all attacking football is the only way to be successful. And I, I say that because, you know, things evolve and change and it might not be the case in five, ten years' time. But what I do see across Europe is teams that are winning things are all attack-minded. You know, mm. the, the, yeah. the, it's very hard to be a pragmatic coach now and stifle teams and shut them out. I think parking the bus sort of type of attitude is so far down the line that many managers have suffered. I would say Diego Simone has suffered a bit with Atletico. I would say Jose definitely is a manager. And then you look at all the old school managers who are perceived to be dinosaurs who were prided themselves on being great defensive coaches. Mm -hmm. Well, all of them have been obliterated, really, in, in the way that football has gone. And David Moyes is an interesting one because I think he was one of the, one of very few, Jar, that changed his attitude to football. He made West Ham far more adventurous than, he, say, his Everton team or even yeah, his Manchester United Everton, side. He, he was considered one of the more boring coaches while at Everton. Yeah, I, I think he's evolved because of that. And... He's obviously reaped the rewards of being a manager that has handled change of the way football's being played. I mean, look, the two examples are obviously what we see in front of us now is Man City and Liverpool because they have set standards. And, mm -hmm. you know, that in itself is all built on, you know, you've got to get the ball off us. I mean, one thing that never ceases to amaze me is that Liverpool and Man City always come to your stadium and will play their game and home advantage is totally irrelevant to them because they're coming to play the way they play. They're going to try and beat you away from home. It's, and, kind of, and, it's wonderful. Like, really, it is wonderful <laughs> when you consider how, uh, how much parking the bus uh, was part of the, f the football that you played professionally. Not your game specifically, but it really mm. was a recognised and respected way to stifle your opponent and then catch them on the break. That's what yeah. they, they said. 
and I have to apologise to everybody in Ireland because I, during that period as well, Joe, which I must remember that obviously Jack Charlton died, yes. um, which was a big scar for me and everybody involved with the Republic of Ireland because Jack was a man that had principles of a certain way of playing that was very effective. And I think in some ways he'd shudder at watching the modern game and thinking what he would made made of it. Um, but the loss of him was quite big for me as well because he obviously finding Jack came out at that time, which was, you know, I know Andy Townsend really well. We keep in touch. He was keeping me up to date with all the, you know, the interviews and watching Paul McGrath on it and thinking, I just want to give him a big hug, Paul. I mean, mm. I had shared rooms with Paul um, over numerous times um, with Ireland, shared rooms and, I saw all these trials and tribulations um, that half of it can't be said or written or, or filmed, mm. um, but to a man that, you know, who had absolute 100% affection for Big Jack. And, and, and Big Jack's treatment of him, by the way, was extraordinary. He knew exactly where Paul was. He knew the problems that Paul had, and he defended him. And I've always said, if he was an England player, he would have been cascaded to, he would have been just taken out because of his behaviour at times, where Jack only wanted to protect him. He didn't consider Jack's position as a manager or what the, the consequences for the squad would be. He just, he would say to all of us, this, lad, this lad's got a lot, a lot of issues. We must mm. all help him and keep it within camp. It's very, and, a very advanced kind of way of viewing it as, do you think he viewed it as an illness? rather than yes, uh, a, a bit of a bosey. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He, he'd obviously been given that information by Jim Walker, who was the physio at Aston Villa, who was, uh, worked under Graham Taylor. And Sir Alex had also told him stuff about Paul. And I didn't think Jack quite, be didn't quite believe how bad it was until he was part of it. But Jack was very sensitive. One thing I got asked once about, you know, about Jack and, and people said to me, tell us, you know, what were words would you use to describe him? And I used one of the words, I said, very sensitive. I said, sensitive is a word I would say. And actually, the journalist at the time said, really? Jack Charlton? Mm. And I went, well, if you'd seen the jacket I saw in front of me, I said, the way he handled things sometimes, more due to that he hated to give you really bad news, but he had to be ruthless in the way he said it because that's the only hurdle we could get over. He couldn't deal with you know, tip-tapping, you know, tiptoeing around you. I mean, I remember when he dropped me in the World Cup 90 and I I, um, I was in a hotel and I crossed him in the foyer. And as he was coming, he went, you're out, Sunday. And that was for the, the Dutch game in 1990, World Cup, in the final group state. Good I said, so, I said, sorry, Jack. He went, you're out. And I went, Jack, I was leading goal scorer in the, the you know, the, I didn't play well against Egypt and nor did many others. I said, but in the build-up, in the qualifying games, I was leading goal score and you're dropping me. He went, you were crap against the Egyptians and just walked off. And oh years, years later, years later, I remember and I, I knew that Jack couldn't handle that conversation because I knew he liked me. Mm. He didn't want, he couldn't handle a, mm -hmm. a, a chat and debate. And I wasn't there to try and say, oh, I'll change your mind. I'm back in the team. But the only way Jack could handle it was sometimes being very insensitive. And he did it with Bobby Cholton as well, his brother. He did the same thing. He, he talked about it on a Desert Island disc where he, he actually said, you know, I, we've just beat a Man United in the semi-final of the, of the Cup. He said, and uh, I've been told that I'm in the England team. He said, and I walked into the Man United dressing room, the away dressing room, and sat next to Bobby and said, I've got news for you. And Bobby said, you know, 
what's the new? And he said, I've been called out for England. He said, we've just beaten Man United in the semi-final cup. And I'm talking about me getting an England call up to mm. my brother in the Man United dressing room. <laughs> Imagine that now. Unbelievable. <laughs> Someone, but that was, that was Jackie. He really didn't read the room in some no. bizarre ways. Yeah. Um, but, but then in other to... ways, as you say, he, he, he shied away from confrontation because, as you say, he would take it to heart that he had these connections with the players that were intimate and yeah. affectionate. You know, that that communication and that ability to commute, that just that ability to communicate with the general public was one of the reasons he was taken to the public's heart. Yeah. Uh, was it timing, well, though? Well, like was it was some of it just, you know, the timing of everything, like obviously the man himself is something else, but like there was a that was a country looking for hope. Did you feel that yeah. at the time? Yeah, I, I felt it in the in the mid eighties, and when I finally got to Jack and the Irish team, and it was a perfect job for Jack. He didn't care too much for spending lots of time with day to day basis at a football club. He didn't particularly like being around players, which he <laughs> that's why he let us on the, the lash too often because he, he didn't want to be you know around us and telling us off and what we should and shouldn't be doing. But the, 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 the deep issue was, and it was pretty much how most of us felt, I said most, I'd say all of us, I'd never met anyone who said any different within the Irish camp, was that he knew the Irish fans loved him. He knew that mm. and he loved that affection. And, and he wasn't a man that, you know, sort of searched for it or looked out for affection. I walked around Wembley when we drew 1-1 and I was sub in, 90, I think, 92 when we drew 1-1 and Quinny scored. And I was just walking around the stadium because he had a race track, you know, like the running track yeah. around, the, around, the, around the pitch at Wembley, Jar. <laughs> and as we were walking, he was getting dogs abused from the England fans. He was shouting abuse, you traitor, Joe, and you said, and he's talking to me as we're walking around to the, where uh, the benches, sitting, sitting down. And uh, he said, I won the World Cup for this country. He said, I won the World Cup. He said, feel how... He said, and as he was walking, he went, the Irish fans would never do that to me. Never. And he really distanced himself from England at that time. Mm. And that, that I find, found quite extraordinary because he took the criticism really to heart, but he knew the Irish fans loved him. And he, obviously, the connection was both ways because mm. Jack loved... He loved Ireland. Everything about Ireland, Jack loved. He loved the honesty of the people. He loved... The, the landscape, he loved the fishing, he loved the attitude to certain things. Nothing was that serious where, you know, the world was changing in, certainly in the UK, where, you know, everything was going for him way too over the top. So God knows what I think of the modern world. I yeah, know, yeah. Job, but, but, but um, you think he appreciated the, the fact that Ireland wasn't kind of on the cutting edge, that it was a little bit out of time at that time? Yeah, he loved that. And he loved, he, he, he just... You know, he, he, and every trip that we came over, not only did the players enjoy coming and playing, but we also loved coming to Ireland to be part of, you know, like what Jack, he, he enjoyed it. He'd jump on the plane. I can't imagine Jack jumping anywhere except for fishing. And yet he jumped over to, on the plane. And, and whenever we met up with him, apart from near the end, when he had a bit of a grumpy face on at times, mm -hmm. because I think he knew what was the end what was, was coming. coming. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, which is inevitable. The end in anything in life, majority of times, is not nice for people, whether it's work, you know, relationships or whatever. It, it, it's never really going to be nice because it's just part of, you know, yeah, the process. Yeah, I mean, he's also it? getting older too. Let's not forget that like, yeah. even, even now myself at 41 years old, I realise I'm a little bit grouchier, <laughs> grouchier. But, you know, we also lost Alan McLaughlin, which was a really yes, sad oh, loss yes. as well. But I do want to ask you... Alan. I did want to ask you one question about Jack before we move on to Alan. Yeah. I heard you say that Jack would say openly that if we had Gary Lineker, we'd win the World mm. Cup. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. He, he wanted... He, he, lightning he, quick he, uh, yes. striker. He, he, he said, and he said this from very early, and Jack, by the way, was incredibly knowledgeable on in football, which sometimes goes amiss. He always wanted a lightning quick striker. He said, the way we play, we are set up to have a lightning quick striker who's clinical. We would go way beyond what, we're, you know, what we've got now. And he looked, he loved Aldo, he liked David Kelly, and me and Quinny could do the sort of role, Frank Stapleton. He never got blessed with a quick striker, which ultimately was what he was desperate for. A Robbie he said, I'm, Yeah, I'm, well, even quicker than Robbie. I mean, Robbie was sharp and quick enough, but I, because Robbie was clinical, um, mm. So that was, but he wanted someone blessed with scary pace. Right. Jamie Vardy, Gary Lineker. You know, yeah. he wanted that type of striker. Suarez. Which, yeah. Yes, exactly. He wanted someone blessed with a yard of pace, two yards of pace. And Lineker was probably beyond the quickest <laughs> I've seen. I mean, Lineker could give people four or five yards when, yeah. when he was at his pomp. And yes, he did. And he was open. The Jack was very open. I, we, we, we all knew what type of team he wanted to put together and the type of midfielders, the type of winger. He loved wingers that just got the ball in. He didn't want wingers to be over-elaborating on the wing and trick and trick and trick. He wanted them to get the ball out of his feet and deliver the ball as early as quick as possible because defenders, and he was a great defender, hated when the ball came in early because of the element of, of course, surprise. Yeah. So that was Jack. And Lineker was... so. We were very close. I mean, if you if you go back that we didn't get beat by England for a, well over a decade or maybe nearly into two decades, and when England had some of the, you know, some really, really top sides, we didn't get beat by them. Mm, they couldn't you know, get around you, know, you. yeah. They, they just couldn't handle whatever they threw at us. We seemed to find a way and we got results against England. And, and uh, I would probably go as far as we would have definitely got to a semi-final. And I'm not sure that element of something a little bit different might be the answer to winning a competition. Because I think you can always argue there's been incredible teams that have not won World Cups or Euros, mm. but have got the full package, but miss something in a tournament. You know, yes. England missed in 96. 96, I thought they were by far the best team. To, to, and, you know, Brazil 82, World Cup. Certainly Brazil in 82 was an incredible side that, you know, Holland going back to the 70s was a 74 was a team that you could debate. Well, they were as good as anybody, if not the best team, but still didn't win the competition. So, yeah, it's it's an opinion, isn't it? That's yeah. And it's also just so much fun to go back and talk about it. I mean, it really is. It, it's an endless like you must be you must be stunned sometimes when you feel that appetite for discussion of this thing that is now. You know, hmm. 30 years ago. Well, it's it's the truth side of it, Jar, because I was part of it and I've always been quite open and how proud I was to play for Ireland and not only 
you know, that period was just at such an extraordinary time of difference and change. I watched Ireland change from afar. You know, I lived in England, but from afar, I watched Ireland change dramatically from the, the early 80s to the, you know, the, the, to get to the start of the 90s and beyond. And, and, I, and I just found it a, a journey that only few of us were privileged to within football. Mm. Um, you know, and I have, I mean, me and Andy Townsend, we're, we're, we're I've known Andy since he was 11. You know, really? it's really weird. Uh, yeah, since 11 years old, we're in the same team. And as a kids, and we would play to Chelsea together and, you know, playing for Ireland together. Me and him, like, just, we're, it's kept a bond between us that is unbreakable, yeah. me and Andy. And both of you witnessed not just change in terms of, like, the Ireland team, the expectation for the Ireland team, but just in top flight football in England. Uh, now, yeah, I've watched a multitude of documentaries about this period, and I think there's again, there's a similar f fascination with Italian 90 as with the arrival of the Premier League and this injection of cash. You know, you obviously at that time you were you weren't you were there with Aston Villa, but you were up to Celtic then directly after that. Mm. When you came back from Celtic to that Chelsea team in 92, was it just like, I, I can't believe what I'm looking at. I heard it was like this. Now, was it unrecognisable from what you'd left? Well, I would probably take it just a tad further, Jar, because when I left Chelsea in 94 and I'd come back from Celtic, I was about, I think, about £6,000 a week. Um, if you're talking the finance side of the game. Mm -hmm. And I, I got to about 7,000 by the time I left Chelsea. Because obviously with the final year, my deal was the highest I was paid. Yeah. And my contract came up in 94. I, it finished. And I got in contact with Marseille and the deal was put together. And I went from 7,000 to 12,000 going to France, to Marseille. That was the, the salary I was being paid. Wow. Two years after I left, so if I go from 94 to 96, I'm still on 12,000, which is only, it's not only, it's still a huge amount of money. Of course it is. Yeah. But, but in 96, Chelsea had gone to 30,000 a week. So I'd left thinking I was on a really good deal at Chelsea at £7,000 a week. Two years later, and I've left to get more money, and the lads at Chelsea were like, wow, great deal going to Marseille. And then two years down the line, that was one of the lowest paid salaries at Chelsea in 96. Yeah, so, and then you compare it to today. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's like another planet. Well, we, me and Ray Houghton had a conversation in the Trust House Faulty at the airport one year, and I, and I said, and it was about 96 time, I said, look, it's not far off £100,000 a week. And everyone was laughing. And, so, and I said, look, I've been, you know, I've been involved in football now for quite a long time. And I, I sort of say this now. I said, I've been involved in football for 40 years. I said, never has there been a period at the top flight where money has gone down. I said, yeah. if you want to dissect it and go from the 80s to the 90s, I'll tell you, Joe, it's as simple as this. The highest paid player in 81 was uh, Peter Shilton and Kenny Sampson, who joined Arsenal. They won £3,000 a week. By the time it got to 1990, John Barnes was £10,000 a week. By the time it got to 2000, Roy Keane had signed a deal of £100,000 a week. So football had trebled in the 80s to the 90s in wages. It had gone tenfold from 90 to 2000, which is the, the, the obviously the Sky TV money, which was the influx of huge money. And then from where we are today, it, it's gone up every decade by a considerable amount. And everyone keeps telling me there's going to be a collapse. And I'm like, well... Please give me some evidence of yeah, where the collapse when? is coming. Yeah. The pandemic's just happened and the wages are going up this summer. 
You know, well, this let is me all... ask this. Yeah, like you're well, so right. Like it is. It, it's bizarre that every other market has a dip. Like the housing property market, we were all told, no, no, it just keeps going up. But it, it does take a dip. Uh, football hasn't taken it. So, you know, for it to happen, something cataclysmic has to take place. Maybe, maybe like, and I don't want to think what that could be. But what I would wanted to ask was, you know, we can talk about the money, but the impact of money on the personalities must be the other thing that you witnessed. That, yeah, sure, cars are bigger, the plates are more elaborate, the jewellery is better. But did you notice a change in attitude or in just the, the players themselves? Well, obviously, I would... I don't want to sidetrack you here slightly, but... Um, I noticed the change in agents and how they become more involved in the game and how they were so savvy of dealing with owners, CEOs at football clubs. You know, I remember Robbie King going to Inter Milan. I remember asking Robbie, and this is nothing against Robbie, you know, asking him about Inter Milan when he left commentary. And he was only 18, 19. And I said to Robbie in the, the Trust House 40 Hotel at Dublin, where we always stayed, I said, why did you go? And to into Milan, I thought it was a strange move for an 18-year-old who was mm. still, for me, had to go and play for a big club in England and like he ended up doing anyway. I thought that would have been a more viable route, at 18 going abroad. And he said, well, ask my bank manager. <laughs> so I'm not even this 18-year-old kid. And it wasn't, it wasn't a flippant remark from Robbie, but it was a sort of an essence of truth where he said, well, ask my bank manager because the deal was so big that... It changed his life instantly as an 18-year-old. Yeah, he would have been a fool not to take it, yeah. Yeah, exactly, a fool not to take it. And football can be pretty brutal. Always enough players out there who have had their careers ended uh, through certain injuries. Um, And the agents played a massive role. It was television, and then you added to the clubs were, you know, clubs were now, you know, Chelsea wouldn't get, they wouldn't get 40,000 if the Beatles played there when I was there. Honestly, honestly, Jar, <laughs> you know, I played I remember playing a game against Southampton on the Tuesday night in about 92, 93, and Ken Bates, the owner of the time, come down to the dressing room. It was a Tuesday night. We're mid-table. It's a horrible, grim night. And it was a 1-1 game. And he went, we sold 7,800 tickets, and 800 of them were complimentaries. <sighs> Shouting that out. Oh and I remember God. thinking, you know, we wouldn't have got 40. Like I said, if the U2 were playing at Stamford Bridge, we weren't getting 40,000, you know? Yeah. I mean, but that will do something to you. I mean, even though you say that, like, I don't think it's a sidetrack to say that the agents became more important and were more central figures and were making decisions or influencing decisions, because that is the there's a whole nother story there. There's a rise of an mm. industry of hangers on and yes. uh, your crew that's around you. But the it's complex, be- Jar. It is, yeah. It's very complex because it's not one thing. It's not just TV came in. You know, mm. what happened was Chelsea was selling out every week by the time the end of the 90s come. There was a there was a machine growing at Chelsea and then new stadiums and huge investment. And owners weren't millionaires, they were billionaires. And you know, to be successful, it, it was like a combination. It's a very complex issue with many different layers mm. that enabled the game to have a really big piece of cake. And there was a lot of cake to be shared around in many different aspects of football. What was the most absurd thing that you saw at that time? Like, what is the thing that really like went around as a story of you're not going to believe what this fella has bought or 
what what's taking place here? <laughs> well, I can I can tell you one quick story. I can't name him because I somebody I know and I okay. don't want to burn, but who bought a place in Portugal and had had this absolutely incredible villa made, and it was just extraordinary. And thinking, wow, and he'd had a big move. And then um, there was a plot next door, and looking at the plot, it's like, well, oh, who's bought that plot? And he went, my agent. <laughs> I went, what do you mean your agent? He went, my agent's bought the plot. I'm thinking, how much money has that agent got out of this deal? And this yeah. is going back like 20 years, Joe. This is going back 20 years ago. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, we the Riolas of this world and Keirja Ropkin, who's, you know, a big involvement and others, you know, uh, within the game mm. of agencies. And, and I remember thinking, an agent has bought a property that comes to millions off a transfer deal that this player's had, and the player doesn't have the problem of thinking how much he's made out of the deal. Yeah. Because basically, he's got him a contract that's extraordinary. He's got, a, you know, obviously a big sign-on fee, but there's also enough there to pay for this agent to have a villa built as well. Wow. <laughs> wow. And, and that, that was, to me, the realisation of, wow, this, this, you know, this so-called collapse of football is certainly not within sight of problems for a long time. And and I always laugh because everybody who, who oh, what about if Sky pull out? What about, you really? You don't think there'll be no one else who'll take this? Amazon mm. have dipped their foot in the water. Yeah. You don't think YouTube? Football is going to go down the road of being what Netflix is, is going to be. That is for sure. That wow. is a guarantee. Whether wow. it's paid. I, I, it, there is a scary picture, but I do, the sums of money jar can be mind-boggling. And look, <laughs> I don't know where it stops because players can have four cars. I mean, Aubameyang's got about four Lamborghinis and, you know, it's like these, these don't even feel like millionaires. They feel like they're nearly billionaires as players. Well, I know when I run to turn off the radio, you know that feeling where you're like, you're listening to something and you go, uh, you can't get it out of your ears quick enough. The only time that I ever do that in terms of sports is when I'm listening to contract discussion around American sports, mm. because with the rise of, uh, you know, the cost of living at the moment and everybody feeling the pinch, it certainly starts to feel a bit grotesque. Uh, and I mm. get that the players aren't responsible for their market value. But I wonder, is that uh, is that a, is that possibly the first crack in this that are people comfortable with, uh, you know, Saudi funded teams paying people the, these amounts of money and not, you know, paying it forward into the community or helping out. I mean, just this week, you know, BP profits. I don't see people marching in the streets over it, but there is such a gulf between rich and poor in the England that I live in here. Mm. It, I, I, I just wonder about it sometimes. Like there's kids in my son's school who don't have, you know, food. They, they come to school mm. hungry. I mean, that seems extraordinary in a country where somebody can be paid £250,000 a week to play football and that just to be a bit of fun for the owner of the club. Yeah, I'm, oh, I might have a bit of a strange view on this, job because I've always, uh, during the pandemic, I watched a lot of debates and podcasts about entrepreneurs. And what mm. I found was that so many of them were very, very generous to what's happening. I watched a lot of Bill Gates, who's one of the wealthiest men in the world, and Harry's Foundation was put together. 
um, how he done so much for, you know, he oh, doing well, work he's in phenomenal Africa. what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, you know, designing a toilet in Africa, which sounds a simple thing that can basically be done for cheap on the, on the say on the cheap, but very effective and mm-hmm. change plate parts of Africa. And I think there is an element of Elon Musk as well in this sort of mindset of, you know, what they do with their money is actually far more than what governments intend to do where there's negligence and waste in every corner. These yes. entrepreneurs don't want negligent and waste. They want to use this money to improve and bring countries out of poverty. Mm. Now, so I, I, we, have, we, we have to be very careful in the West because we don't realise that, and, and again, through a lot of research during the, the pandemic, of that you know, at one time there was 40 countries in, you know, impoverished in the world, and now, now we're, we're bringing that down. By 2040, we reckon we'll be down to 11 countries in the world which is a massive improvement. And I think there's so many people with money that are very conscious about what they do with their money. And they don't mind being very generous to try and help people in lesser situations. That idea of greed is selected for a few. There is, in like any walk of life, Joe, there's going to be people who don't want to buy raffle tickets for a certain thing or don't want to give, you know, to a charity. Well, I think I've been really lucky and been around people and, and I'd like to think of my own uh, myself as quite a generous person as, as I can be. Mm-hmm. And if I see difficult things, I I want to be part of it. And I'm I feel very privileged in where I am and what I do in my life. And I think I, I always edge on the side of caution because you're right about the grotesque. I think it's grotesque as if people want to rub it in other people's faces and just are very selfish about their attitude to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's that's just bad education and bad you know I, I it's a very difficult one job but i i find myself more optimistic through people who earn lots of money who want to play a part you know we've seen a lot of footballers who have donated and i know i know this is fact and charity events are getting invited to a few of them there's a lot of people within the game who want to help i do probably about six events a year i need i don't care it being out there but i just go and say yeah I, you know, I'll come along if I can help out and, you know, I'll do it. I don't, and I, I, there's a lot of people in football who are like that, but we get stereotyped as in, well, it's all greed, greed, greed. Well, select few are like that, but I would say the majority of them are not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is true. We, and many won't tell. Like many yeah. w- would find it more uh, garish or uh, crass yeah. to announce the great charity work or donations that they're making. I have so many questions, Tony. I I really want to get that five minutes that we lost in that first interview. If people yes, want to go, go if people want to go back and hear the kind of origin story of Tony Cascarino, it's right there in our archive on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. And it mm. is one of my favorite interviews in the entire hundreds of episodes that we've now got on there. The archive includes interviews with Sir Bob Geldof, Gabriel Byrne, Mary Robinson, Sharon Horgan, uh, Dylan Moore, and you name it. They're all in there. And the <laughs> way we support this show is you pay a fiver a month and you get access to everything and you get double size episodes of my conversations with Sonia Sullivan on a Tuesday, Marion McKeown on a Friday and of course the big interview on a Sunday. So come on over there now and hear the second half of my conversation with Tony when we're going to get that elusive five minutes that I messed up first time around. So really quick before you go, 
I want to say a huge thanks to uh, Tony for taking the time to do this. The second half of it, as I say, we get into an awful lot more, including that story of his nationality, the story that has followed him around for so many years. Also, a big conversation about Roy Keane and how his relationship with punditry has changed over the years. Tony and Roy, of course, have had a certain amount of antagonism over at that time. And he explains the reason for it, a very personal reason that maybe even Roy doesn't know. It's all in the extra length version of this, which is another further 30 minutes. Every single week, I'll give you double size episodes if you come over and support the show. Really, I don't know how we survived the last three years without the patrons. So thank you to everyone who has done that. If you're considering it, make the leap this week because we are offering a very special May only 15% discount on membership. So you can pay for your whole year at a significantly lower price for the month of May only. Come on over now and enjoy access to the full archive, double-sized episodes of all our episodes, including Marion on a Friday and Sonia on a Tuesday. Uh, You won't regret it, certainly not for this episode. It's Tony Cascarino's second half of this chat. It is a game of two halves with Tony, and you'll want to hear it, trust me.